frequencies. can be found on page 1005 of the Church Bible. The parable of the sower. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught, he taught them many things by parable and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Some other seed, seed sorry, fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything it said in the parable, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they may turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the seed, some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at, at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Pray for you. So, great. Uh, Father God, we thank you for our brother and your servant, Andy. And we thank you for the word that you place in his heart. And may our hearts and our ears and our minds be open to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. I, I was actually really pleased when Dave gave me this parable, the parable of the sower. I, I love a good biblical botanical. And uh, I, I thought I was pretty safe on this message uh, about seed and soil. I talk about plants for a living, particularly the woody varieties. I even own a book on seeds with over 1,500 pages in it. 
Imagine then my horror when after closer reading, I discovered that in fact, today's passage has almost got nothing to do with seed or soil. And <laughs> I was sold a right dummy, I think. Any of you that have studied the Bible for any length of time would be aware that Jesus taught in parables. Now, at first glance, it can be a little bewildering, can't it, as to why on earth Jesus would use these short, simple stories to convey such important elements of his teaching. And so it's probably worthwhile just at the outset then to, to look briefly at what a parable is and why Jesus might have used them so widely in his teaching. Probably in, in, in stark contrast to the religious teaching of the Pharisees, parables were short, simple stories that were easy to relate to. They were not just stories with meaning, although, of course, they did have meaning. They still have meaning. They were not just stories with a moral, but, of course, many of the, the parables do contain morals. They were much more than Aesop's fables or the just-so stories of Rudyard Kipling. They were stories that revealed some sort of fundamental truth about God and our relationship with God. The word parable actually means to make a comparison. And so... It's a bit cheesy, but in a sense, it's you know this earth, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, or something like that. And often, stories that allow some sense of us to look through a lens and perhaps see a new aspect of our character or a new aspect of our relationship with God under a new light. They were, they're stories that reveal a portrait, with each parable portraying a different scene. If you like, they're a literary selfie. We're so accustomed to reading the Bible, aren't we, that it's easy to forget that the original audience would have just heard the spoken word. And this is really important when looking at parables. They're not designed, really, to be written down, to be dissected by scholars for every nuanced meaning. They were designed to be simple and easy to remember. So... We need to be careful not to look for meaning in every single minute detail. But we look to the main narrative, the main thrust of the story. And equally, each parable has, has a quite a discrete focus. So they weren't designed to contain everything about the truth of God, just something of the truth of God. One final point on parables, as I found when I started researching this, they're not what they say on the tin. The parable of the sower is not about horticultural practice. The parable of the mustard seed is not about condiments. And the parable of the yeast is not about baking. Parables, then, they require something of the listener. They require something of us. If the listener was or is truly seeking God, then the parable would make sense. Truth would be revealed. So in a way, the parable had a way of filtering the crowds. You see, some people gathered around Jesus because, well, lots of people seem to be doing that. Nothing better to do on that afternoon. And, you know, a crowd draws a crowd, doesn't it? How, how often have you been drawn to a crowd yourself just to see what's going on? Some people would have wanted to see miracles, to see magic. They wanted to be there when the headlines were made. They wanted to see Jesus perform, but they weren't seriously interested in what Jesus had to say. Some, no doubt, had a more professional interest 
and what Jesus had to say. I'm sure the Pharisees were already quite perturbed at what Jesus was doing, and they were starting to collate evidence to use against him. Others, though, were more sincere. They wanted to learn from Jesus and have the truth revealed to them. Well, as we pick up today's passage, we see that a large crowd had gathered around Jesus. You get the feeling there was a certain nervous energy, an anticipative atmosphere, a tension in the air. Jesus wanted to preach. He wanted to impart the wisdom of God. But the crowd wanted spectacle. Indeed, the crowd was so large that he had to get into a boat so that he could address people uh, that were lining the shore from the water. And I think, like, like the beginning of so many teachers' lessons, it starts with an exasperated, listen! I'm putting that, perhaps imagining that a bit, but he starts with, listen! This is a rallying call, if you like, to all those that are eager to hear what Jesus had to say. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Of course, Jesus was describing a familiar scene to such an agricultural society. A farmer walking through his patch of land with a shoulder bag, broadcasting seed liberally over the soil. You see, Palestine was not renowned for its deep, fertile, alluvial soil. The sand was pretty, sorry, the land was pretty marginal. And anything that was half decent was often sub subdivided up into fairly small parcels, with each parcel of land um, between that would have been sort of well-trodden paths, if you like, where generations of farmers would have walked to and from their own little patch of land. So uh, I think the first thing to note is that the imagery that Jesus used is very easy to relate to. It's not exclusive in any way, is it? Everybody could have brought to their mind's eye the farmer sowing the seed. It would have been their father, their brother, their uncle, their cousin. The more switched on in the audience might have picked up that the sowing was an Old, uh, Old Testament metaphor for God's work. God promises to sow Israel to begin her renewal. So we see in Je Jeremiah chapter 31, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I am concerned for you and I will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown. And there are a number of other examples. And indeed, it's that sentiment that alludes to the true meaning of the parable. 
The seed is the word of God. The sower, someone who shares the word of God. And the soil is the human heart. So the parable evaluates various responses to God's word and demonstrates how the kingdom of God is built. Before we get into those four key responses, let's look at the big picture. This is not a case of a GPS-controlled seed drill that uh, delivers one seed per hole with pinpoint precision. It's not even a middle-class good lifer going down to the allotment with a dibber and a packet of seed. This was broadcast. This was thrown around, this seed. I thought about demonstrating it at this point, but didn't want to face Pat at the end of the service. (laughs) The sower sows liberally. And if the seed is the word of God, then nobody should be excluded on principle. It's what John Calvin describes as the indiscriminate offer of the gospel. As Christians, we should not sow seeds only to those we think are God's chosen ones. Those that support the same sporting teams as us. Those who we know to be agreeable. Those who we most easily relate to. Those that share our political views. We cannot simply avoid preaching the gospel to those who we don't like very much. Perhaps another key message is that the seed is faithfully sown. The success of the harvest does not lie with the sower, but with the soil. Failure is due to the reception of the soil and not the vitality of the seed. In Isaiah chapter 55 it says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The word of God will not fail. The harvest will come from the good soil. Just as as there is life within seed, there is life within God's word. And God's word has the power to produce life in people. While this parable teaches us that there is power and potency in the word of God, it also reveals that growth and productivity are not automatic functions of sowing God's word. Some seed lands on that hard, compacted ground, the path between those parcels of land that have been trodden for generations. This ground represents the hardness of heart, the hardness of mind that is a barrier to the word of God germinating within the listener. Some people are so resistant, so calloused against God, that, or their perception of God perhaps, that the birds, which Jesus goes on to describe as Satan, swoop in and snatch away all the potential held within that seed before it can settle properly within the soil and take root. God's word is prevented from acting upon their hearts because of the state of their heart soil, if you like. Some seed fell in rocky places. Those marginal sites on the land 
that are much harder to cultivate. Here this, the soil is thin, but not too thin um, that it will prevent germination. It characterizes those people on the face of it who make a quick and positive response to God's word. They are perhaps attracted by the initial joy of becoming a Christian, perhaps even the joy of something new. The joy of being accepted, perhaps. But as with plants on shallow soil, when those environmental challenges come, they do not have the depth and the extent of root to cope with it. When the inevitable harmony of life shifts to a minor key, when there becomes financial difficulty, relationship breakdown, insecure employment, argument with other Christians, perhaps, their shallow heart is revealed. Their faith withers like the plant with no roots and scant soil. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Some of you may have read the Screwtape Letters. I don't know whether uh, any of you have. And uh, it describes Wormwood, a junior devil, that's tasked with preventing his patient, in inverted commas, from becoming a Christian and forming a relationship with God. And this, the book describes this incredibly insightful, imagined correspondence between Wormwood and his more senior devil uncle, Screwtape. I just want to read a short extract from the second of Screwtape's letters to Wormwood. I should say at the, the outset, uh, so you don't get too confused, the enemy refers to God. These are devils talking, so the enemies refer to God. I contracted the letter somewhat just for the sake of time, but it starts out, My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of living together. In every department of life, it marks a transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. And as it goes on. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is only parrot talk. At the bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted. He thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church. Keep him in that state for as long as you can your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. It can be that one's Christian faith is rather superficial. Life decisions can be driven by emotion, by feeling. And so whilst faith can be proclaimed with great enthusiasm one week, the attrition of life can lead to denial the next. Indeed, C.S. Lewis suggests that sustaining this superficiality is a ploy of the devil to, pre to prevent deeper relationship with God. Like 
any great love, real faith, is rooted more deeply than our temporal mood swings. So the seed, sorry, the scene of the seed germinating on shallow, rocky soil shows us that some people will hear the word, engage with Christian life, turn up to church, have Christian friends, sing Christian songs, but they will be drawn away from God when things get tough. In fact, this parable says more than that. It says we should expect this response uh, from some people. Well, where else does the seed fall? It falls amongst the thorns, doesn't it? Much of the land that would have been used uh, in Palestine was you know, pretty subsistent land. It was pretty ordinary. It would have been basically semi-arid scrubland, and as such, patches of thorns would never have been very far away. Now, if a farmer or one of their laborers was not that diligent, these thorns would have just been hacked away at the base, if you like away at ground level. On the face of it, it would have left a bare, bare patch, a bare, bare ground that was a decent looking seedbed on which to cast your seed. The reality, though, is quite different. Whilst the seed would likely germinate, the weeds, the thorns with their pre-existing root systems just compete that much stronger, that much harder for light and space until the crop comes choked. When Jesus is interpreting the parable to his disciples later on in the chapter, he says this, Still others, like the seed sown among the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. There can be so many things in life that compete with our faith. We often want it all, don't we? We want all the material things that this world has to offer. We're happy to allow ourselves to desire those new shoes, the new smartphone, the fancy car, the new book on trees when you have hundreds already. (laughs) Just me, maybe. We want to consume the latest Netflix series. We're happy to commit our time and energy in abundance to our hobbies and interests. And while none of these things need be disastrous to our faith, an audit of our time and money does reveal where our priorities lie. And no doubt there are things in this life that can choke a relationship with God. Notice that this competition within the heart doesn't instantly overwhelm the word of God, but it erodes its ability to flourish in an incremental way. It prevents faith and deep relationship with God from becoming rooted and eventually acts to exclude these things altogether. So whilst it is not a sin to pursue our hobbies and interests, we should be aware of these things that take hold in our life and that exclude God and and begin to choke out our spiritual growth. Again, this is a real response that we should expect to some degree if we are to preach and share the word of God. If you think about it, our own... So why proclaim the word of God at all? Seeds are simply eaten by birds. Young plants withered and choked. Why bother? The answer, because the good soil makes it all worthwhile. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop 
multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. If the conditions in the heart are right, the reception of God's word is wholesome. It becomes deep-rooted and is fruitful. One seed can yield a harvest. One seed has the power to bear fruit. Our own spiritual lineage stretches back to around the time that Jesus was delivering that parable on the shore. From that time to now, seeds have been sown, harvest reaped, seeds sown once more. The good soil makes it all worthwhile because it leads to solid professions of faith in Jesus that are deeply rooted in hearts eager to learn more of God to share his love and the gospel message that Jesus came to die so that our relationship with God might be restored for all eternity. At the beginning of the talk, I I cautioned against extrapolating or overreaching the message held within parables. I think I've probably covered the main points, but I just want to share a few last thoughts that I think hold true and are relevant. The first three examples where the seed lands on the path, the rocky places, and among the thorns are not necessarily permanent. No one should believe that somehow that they have had their chance and have failed, that there is no hope. We should not believe that in others either. Over time, soil can become softened, its depth increased, the competition removed. Despite the failure of seed to germinate or establish, the seed was still sown. No harm was done to the person whose profession of faith did not last or to the person whose faith was overwhelmed by the worries of this life. Their faith may seem transient now, but those decisions, however fleeting, may pave the way to a more permanent commitment to Jesus at a later time. And we pray that would be so in all those cases. Furthermore, the person who had a solid conversion upon hearing the word can later be one of the first three examples. Perhaps you have made a commitment to Jesus and accept him as your saviour, but the word of God is bigger than the gospel message. How often have you been moved by an inspiring message or conversation to pray more, love more, serve more, give more, worship more, sin less, only to feel the gravitational pull of your old behaviours in the days that follow. When we are deeply challenged spiritually by a revealed truth of God's word, do you ever struggle to accept it? To forgive that person who frankly doesn't deserve your forgiveness? To hand over a greater percentage of your wealth? To transform the lives of those less fortunate? To relinquish control of your own life and hand it to Jesus? So while I think this parable portrays four basic reactions to hearing God's word, it also provides, on some level at least, a portrait of each one of us. At times we can all be vulnerable 
to Satan snatching away the truth as it ricochets off our, whole, our hardened hearts. We have perhaps all been guilty of enthusiastic responses that have not stood the test of time. And I'm sure we've all felt the competition of this world, world with our faith. I hope too that in a sense you have also witnessed that most remarkable of things. The germination of seed sown, the transition of something with potential into something real, the expansion of deep roots that help weather tough times and bring forth fruit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. The word, Lord, that has transformed life for all eternity. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would prepare in us good soil that would receive your word. Lord, we think uh, particularly as we uh, set up a, a new congregation on the other side of the road, Lord. We just ask that uh, you would cultivate hearts in that area too. So that when Dave or any of us speak to those people, Lord, that they would receive your word. Lord, we think of those that have joined the Alpha course. We ask that you would prepare their hearts, Lord. You would cultivate the soil of their hearts so that it would be ready to receive your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would protect us against hardened hearts. Lord, against the worries of this life, against superficial reactions, Lord, so that we might be changed forever by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Andy. You're always in capable hands when you stand up. I'm reminded, uh, thank you for reminding us that, that the Lord sends his love down to us all. He's, and he spreads his seed liberally. And uh, it can fall on us and it has no effect. Well, many it has no effect, but he keeps sowing, doesn't he? And um, thank you for reminding me of that. And, it, and I mentioned it last week in my sermon. That, that, uh, Abba Moses said that the strength of those who wish to acquire the virtues I find Christ lies in that should they fall, they do not lose heart, but stand up and try again. And seeds instantly coming down. And we're going to receive some of God's grace very shortly together. Uh, around uh, the communion table. So let's stand and let us sing as we prepare.